0: You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Hey, I w- welcome you to back to Baldwin, back to a new worship center. I am thankful that we're here. We were here back in August, nice air conditioning back then, but now we are back. Hey, if this is your first time uh, visiting with us, either online or in, in person, my name is Rich. I'm one of the members here. Our pastor, Will, is uh, on sabbatical, doing well. He'll be back in a couple of weeks. And I have, uh, once again, the honor to step into the pulpit uh, with Brian and Joe and, and bring you a message as we continue our series on our future hope and what that uh, entails for us. We sang about it, we've read about it. Uh, you kind of, I think you know where we're going with this. If you would take your Bibles, and uh, certainly look at Revelation 7. But I want you to find also Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to go to that later. These will be our two texts. One thing I was thinking about was, as we, as we read this, I don't know if you noticed, but it starts off with saying, after this, or this happened. So we're kind of jumping in the middle of a story. So we're going to walk through the context here in a few minutes. But what I want you to think about is, this is the writer of Revelation, which we think is John, and there's some disagreements on exactly which John this was, but that doesn't really matter. It's a guy named John who wrote God's Word as he's inspired. Amen? Amen, Chris. There we go. Thank you. Our resident theologian right on the front row. Thank you. John gives you a snapshot of the most glorious family picture you can ever possibly imagine. Here in chapter 7, we have a snapshot of what our hope looks forward to. And I don't know about you all, I know we, take, we use our phones to take pictures all the time now. When I was a kid, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't even have cell phones at all. I know it's kind of hard to, to imagine and remember those days. And we had these things called cameras. that had film in them and we had to take a picture and we had to wait to get processed and go, I hope it turns out, instead of just going, click, oh, that didn't turn out, let me take it again. Our new world is nice in that respect, but we also had all these photos, I remember we had a drawer in my house that had, they weren't really organized, they were just stacked up in this drawer, and I remember I would go through them, and as a young kid, and I would look at the pictures of, of some years ago, some of my grandparents, some of my parents were kids, and just think about, well, what was going on in that picture? Or why was that picture taken in that way? Uh, years later, my sister took those and organized them and put them in, in these things called portfolios. If y'all remember those, had the little the plastic stuff with the sticky pages. She actually built some for our parents and for us and put them together. But now we have these great little creations like this is, this is one my sister-in-law did for Heather. Uh, they may be watching right now. So this, they have a couple of these in our house. You can upload these now to different places and it's kind of the same thing. But the cool thing now is you can put all kinds of graphics and words and things in them and help us to remember of where we've been. But also to think about what's in the future. Here we have a snapshot of God showing us of where, he, where he's brought us and where we're going to go and the beauty of what that might look like. You know, if you think about a picture, though, a snapshot captures an event, something that's fun, something that is significant in your family's life, where you sit in front of a professional photographer and they tell you to turn your head one way and smile. That captures a moment in time. What you don't get in that in that that portfolio or that um, family picture is you don't necessarily catch the emotion of the time. I think that's why we like our, our phones. We can capture things that immediately. We capture the emotion of what's going on at that time. And maybe looking at some of your Facebook pages, it might be a mom with their, their newborn asleep on them. Or maybe throwing a, a, a funny picture of your dog. Or it may be just a, a, a moment you capture with you and your spouse sitting at a table. It may be kind of posed, but it's a significant event in your life. God is showing us a significant event in our lives right here in Revelation chapter seven. I know how beautiful it is. But I don't know if you all are students or scholars of the book of Revelation or have even looked through it. I've read through it a couple of times and I don't know about you, uh, but it's weird You ever notice that there's some weird stuff in there? So let's talk about Revelation just in general, so we can get an understanding of the context. So we think it was written by John. He says he identifies himself as John. He's on this island. He's he's banished. We think, and he says he's in the. It's on the Lord's Day, and he's in the Spirit, so he's testifying to the authenticity of what he's writing is coming from God. And the big theme through Revelation, as weird as it is, and all this imagery is two things. He's writing to denounce evil and to show that God's judgment is real. And he's also showing us a moral exhortation where he's saying, hey, Christians, I need you to follow Christ and live nobly. And you look at the first couple of chapters, he writes a couple of letters to some churches, and that's basically what he's saying. He's like, you need it. Jesus is saying, churches, you need to get on board, Need to get on board with the plan. I need you to focus on Judea and our culture. I think that's probably a pretty good one right now. We need to be the banner, holders of banners of truth and love and justice. And let's point out where things are false and not true. In our text today in in chapter seven, John, he has this picture, this snapshot. It's not just a picture of heaven. What I want you to see is this is our future hope. This is our home. This is our new city. Now, we live in Manassas and we call it New City Fellowship. But what we see here in Revelation 7, this is our destination for those who believe. So, my question for you this morning as we're walking through the text is do you believe? Do you believe in our literal heaven? And if you do, how does that play out in your life today? Because heaven is victory. If you believe in victory, how do you live in victory right here, right now? There's also a counter to heaven. If there's good, there's evil. If there's heaven, there is a hell. And sometimes that comes in the the form of God's judgment on us. And we'll look at some of that today. But we struggle because we live in this temporal world and we live in this, this body that's decaying and we live in a world that's imperfect and we're trying to make it a little bit better. And as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we talked about lamentations. I think it's the same trouble that the, Judah was struggling with. Then times are good and those, those mountaintop experiences, those times that are, that are abundance, we forget that God is the one who brought us there. Because things are good. We don't really need God. We don't need a protector because all things are good, right? The problem is our hope then depends upon us. We forget that there's blessings and there's judgments from God because things are good. We're all right. Similarly, we go through difficult times and some of you in this room, no doubt, are going through a struggling time right now. It's all too natural for us to doubt. Maybe to blame others. Therefore, our hope, blinded by the emotional, relational pain right in front of us, you lose your confidence. What I want to just really just encourage you today, that hope is part of who we are as failed humans. It's fickle. It's, it's uh, unreliable. It's errant. We need to grasp a hold of God's biblical hope, and we've talked about this several times through our sermons in this series Biblical hope is a confident expectation founded upon God's promises. And He gives us a snapshot of that promise right here. And with two things I want you to take away from the day, if you don't take, if you don't remember anything other than a snapshot, is I want you to grasp the significance of this snapshot we have in Revelation 7. Just understand what this picture really means. And then I want you to explore that future hope of the blessings we see in that picture. So but I want to roll back. Let's talk about the context. Talk about Revelation written by John. It's about judging evil and lifting up goodness. He opens up in chapter one uh, with this picture of Jesus. When you get an opportunity this week, go back and read it. It's very interesting. There's a lot of imagery here. This is a book that's really prophetic. It's written in what we call apocalyptic language, which means the future, the end times, the culmination. And John's pulling a lot of language from Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. When you go back and read those, you see some similar language and similar pictures of heaven. So it's, as I said, it's weird. It's not to be taken literally because John is trying to describe what he sees in the spirit, what is indescribable, standing before God in all his glory. We don't have human words that can possibly capture that. It's kind of describing your love for your spouse or your love for your children. How do you describe that? That's what John is describing. But this picture of Christ, many of you have seen several pictures through history of of representations of Jesus. There's a famous, uh, there's the other one that we see in our children's uh, Bibles, it's got the the, the very nice looking Jesus with the lamb over his shoulder, and he's got the children coming to him. So that's certainly those are that is what Jesus is like. All come to me, come to me. But the picture we see of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is not that Jesus. It is a powerful, reigning, fearful, perfect being. Just take a look at it. It's pretty awesome. In Revelation 3 through 7, where we talk, he talks to the churches. I'm sorry, Revelation 3, he talks to the seven churches, and we, we could do a series on that, but that's not for this morning. The bottom point there is he is commending them for some things, and he's condemning them for other things, and Jesus is saying, get on board, get on board. It's probably a good message for us if we just walked away from, from that today. Then we go to Revelation chapter 4, and we, we switch. There's a, a scene switch, and John is ushered into the throne room of God. Imagine if God could take you right now and say, hey, just come with me. Come through this door. And you step into the glory of his throne room. Again, John is describing what's indescribable. It's, similar to, again, similar to the imagery in the Old Testament, but he, he talks about this great throne and this radiant that's in there and these elders that are around and there's angelic beings and they're all worshiping they're just continuously worshiping they have all these choruses they sing very similar what we just sang all glory and honor and power and thanksgiving belong to you O god and then revelation 5 it's a picture of god sitting on his throne and he said there's a scroll in his hand this is very significant in his right hand, the right hand of justice, the right hand of power, there is a scroll. And we think, maybe, this is God's plan for eternity. And they sing this chorus, who is worthy to take the scroll and open that scroll? Who is worthy to do that? Well, rhetorically, well, God owns it. It's in his hand. God could do it, Right? But the angels say, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who appears in the middle of the throne room next to God at his right hand. And then we get to Revelation chapter 6, and he takes the scroll. Now, just imagine your mind like an old-timey scroll rolled up. And the way they would close them is they would put a wax seal on it, and the person who had the authority, the, the, when we get the signet ring, they would impress their, their name or their, their sign in that wax to say, this is authority, I've, I've sealed this. And they, tell, they say, who can open it and who can execute it? So this is God saying, lamb, you may open it. Now we think of this as God's plan for eternity, and we can open it up and go, all right, here it is. What's this going to look like? What's the rest of my eternity going to look like? That would be a good thing. But as soon as he starts to open those seals, if you've read chapter six, you realize, ooh, maybe this is not gonna be as what we thought. Because <laughs> he opens up the first four. Anybody heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? That's what the first four are. And they go out through the earth. They're death and judgment. So God is loving, but to be perfectly loving, he has to be a perfect judge as well. So the first four seals are the four horsemen and they're different colors. I'll let you read through those later and they're gonna execute God's judgment on the earth. He gets the fifth fifth seal. He says we see the martyrs under the altar and we think, okay, these are the people who have given their life for God. They're testament to Christ. We should celebrate them and he does and he puts a white robe on them and then he says, it's gonna be a little bit more. There's gonna be some more judgment, some more persecution come. So that fifth seal, although it's a celebration, there's still more judgment to come. You guys are really excited at this point. This sounds good, doesn't it? This this big earthquake, this big natural events happen. Then we have chapter seven where we're at. So we're going to hold that. Jump to chapter eight. This is the seventh seal, the last one. We're getting ready to open the, the scroll to find out what God says, and we open that last seal. And then remember, described in John, John describes that this throne room is worshiping and praising God continuously and the prayers of the saints are coming up like um, incense. They open that last seal in, in chapter 8 and it says there is complete silence in heaven for 30 minutes. For half an hour. Now, that may, 30 minutes is not that long but if you're holding your breath for 30 minutes that gets real long doesn't it? Imagine you have the greatest worship service ever you're all into it. We open up this, the scroll, and it's dead silence. I think it's dead silence because that last seal reveals seven—again, seven—seven angels with seven trumpets, and I'll let you read that later. What happens? Because those trumpets are worse than the the four horsemen. This is where the day or the day of the Lord comes. And he brings some pretty bad judgment on those unbelievers. They also usher in the seven bowls of judgment, God's wrath coming. So in the middle of all this judgment, we're in the throne room. And I want you to open up chapter 6, if you would. Revelation chapter 6. And read with me just to set the scene. Revelation chapter 6, verse number 12. And when he... The Lamb opened the sixth seal. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit being shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the general in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains." Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and those, for their great day of wrath has come. And then here's the question who can stand? Who can suffer through? Who can live through this judgment of God? In chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels. And this is where he talks about the 144,000. And I know some of you all may, may really love this, this, this end time stuff and get all into pre-millennial, post-millennial, pre-trib, post-trib stuff. And I, I wish we had time this morning to do that, but that's really a series of, of classes that we can do at another time. What we're going to look at today, this is all in there, but this 144,000 is who can stand. Who can stand the, through all that? God will, pers- will preserve a remnant of Israel, which looks back to what he told David. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I walked through the covenants and the Davidic covenant says, David, through your line, the kingdom will reign forever through the line of Judah. And right here, in the beginning of chapter seven, God says, not only Judah, but the whole nation of Israel represented about 144,000. Literal number, don't know, don't care. Is a remnant of Israel. Skip down to verse 9. So, hopefully, walking through that, now you understand. In verse 9, he says, And after this, so after that sixth seal, and the heavens fall, and the the skies roll back, and all the people on the earth are running and hiding, saying, Please hide us, who can stand this? But God, in his faithfulness and his promises, will preserve Israel. Verse nine: After I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb. Clo- Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders with the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, "Amen." blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Who can stand? The nations. Every tongue, every tribe, the peoples and languages who have been clothed in white robes cleansed by the blood of the lamb. That's who can stand. Who is that? Those who know Christ, those who have given their life to him and said, you are my Lord and my God. If that is you, if you've done that in your life, you're standing there in this picture, this snapshot of the future, amen? I think that's pretty good future hope, don't you? But look what they do. They're in white robes. They have palm branches, which is a picture. He's, he's looking back to the triumphal, of, triumphal infantry of Christ in Jerusalem where they laid the palms down. We celebrate that on Palm Sunday. Recognizing him as the king. They have the palm branches and the white robes. We're gonna talk about white robes in just a minute. They're standing around the throne, and they say amen, and they go through the blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and they finish it with amen. So we finish that, of our Prayers with amen, don't we? Just kind of throw it out there. In Jesus' name, amen. What does that really mean? Jesus uses this word as truly, truly. Surely, I tell you, this is the truth. But they're using it different. It is the same word. It has the same meaning of truly. But it also has the idea of what we're saying. May it be done according to you, God. God, you are powerful. You are wise. You have the awesome thanksgiving you are our might forever and ever. You are the most. You are the powerful one, who. And you said you will do it, and we know that you don't lie, as Joe preached about last week. You will come and get us, and we'll be with you. Who can stand? We can, because we know the we know the Christ. All nations, of every tongue, every tribe, language. This is not just the nation of Israel. This is everybody who knows Christ. This is a fulfillment of another covenant, the Abrahamic covenant we talked about a couple of weeks ago. God said, Abraham, look into the stars; your children will be more than the stars. Genesis 22. He says, look. it says it again. He says, look at the stars and look at the sand. Anybody been to the beach recently? There's a lot of little pieces of sand. God says, your children will be more than the grains of sand, and I'm going to make it happen through Christ. So we have in this section really three movements. We've talked about the first one, the throne room, so we see the snapshot, but I want you to see the significance of that snapshot. There's a conversation, kind of switches here. One of the elders talks to John. There's only two times the elders in heaven talk, and this is one of them, which was probably pretty significant, and he asked two questions to John. He said, who are these in clothed, the white robes, and where do they come from in verse 13? So who are they, where do they come from? It's really a rhetorical question because he's asking John, but he's in heaven. You would think you should know this. You're an elder. And uh, John so calls him out and says, well, you know, tell us. And he said, these are the ones and made them white with the blood of the lamb." So the significance of the snapshot is we are standing holy and solely because of the blood of the lamb. The blood that's pictured as slain at the altar in between the throne that's the only reason we can be there. This is an obvious Old Testament reference back to the sacrificial system. This is all the way back into Genesis. You know, the Jewish people today, they, they still celebrate one of their high holy days as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But when you go back and read in the, in the first five books, it talks about how to do that. How do you, how do you forgive the sins of the nation and the individuals And they would have this huge worship ceremony, and they would find a lamb without blemish, or a goat, depends on the translation, an innocent lamb. And they would bring it before the priest. The priest would pray. All the all them would take sins of the nation over that that lamb, symbolizing that lamb would take it on. Then they would sacrifice that lamb. They would take the blood of that lamb. If you read in there, and they sprinkle it on the altar. And then one time a year, that priest would take that blood. Into the temple, into the holy of holies, to where the ark of the covenant, and the presence of God, was. One time a year. The struggle with that is, it's only good for one for a year. But Jesus is the Lamb. He is the fulfillment. We don't have to do him every year. It's good forever. We celebrate it every year to remember. But Jesus is the Lamb standing there that will wash us as white as snow. Flip over to Hebrews 13, the, one, the section I ask you to go to. And While you're turning there, I want you to listen to what Isaiah says. It says, come on, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. When I think of white, when I think of blood, that's pretty good contrast, but the blood is life. Our sins are reflected in the color of that blood. That will wash us. Jesus, sin will wa- Jesus, not sin. Jesus' blood will wash us from our own sins. Hebrews thirteen. Look, look at verse eleven. Read with me, if you would. Talking about this blood writer says for the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest they would do not just one they do multiple but there was one particular one they would take the bodies and they would burn them outside the camp so outside the worship area they did that in order to sanctify the people through i'm sorry back up i skipped a verse The blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin and are burned outside the camp, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So thinking back to Jesus' sacrifice outside the gate at Golgotha, verse 13. Therefore, here's our application. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This is the writer saying, associate yourself with the death and burial resurrection of Christ. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Pictured here in Revelation 7, although, or through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to the God. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Down at, verse, down at the end of the verse says with joy. Now, sometimes we submission is not with joy. And in verse 18, pray for us. So as we associate with Christ, some great application of submitting to leaders, praying for others, doing good, and sharing what you have, offering up continuing sacrifice. Are you getting the snapshot? Are you getting the snapshot of heaven and the implication of the blood of the Lamb? Sometimes we live in a, in, a, in a world that's just it's just a struggle at times. I know. Some of you are going through some difficult times, and some of you are going through some mountaintop times, and some of you are kind of in the middle. The truth of the matter is difficult times are going to come. They're, they're going to come to us all because we live in a fallen world and Jesus hasn't come back yet. But he is. He will snapshot, I want you to explore the future hope of these blessings and think about what is he saying here, these blessings are. So let's look at verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. So after he has a conversation with the elder, the elder continues and says, therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Here's the great encouragement. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So how do we deal with the difficulties here? Think about the future hope that this is not our world. We have a new city to go to, what our world is here in this text. And really what he's saying is, these are the blessings amongst the curses. That's why I wanted to talk about the, the different seals, because this one's in the middle of all that judgment. God, as he brought the, the Israelites into the, into the promised land, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he put them on two mountains, mountains of blessing, mountain of curses, and he said, choose. Choose which way you're going to follow. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And Jeremiah says, I'll remember your sin no more. I have a new covenant with you, but I need you to follow me. Be with me. Look at these blessings. Verse 15, there's three of them. And they all deal with the direct presence of God. They will be before his throne day and night in his temple and he, God, who sits on the throne will shelter them. He will tabernacle with them. It means he will live with them. He will be with them. It's, the culmination of Jesus coming, putting on flesh and being with us. He said Jesus came to the tabernacle with us. Now he's bringing us to his house. Verse 14 has four specific ones. And I'm sure you picked up on them very quick. Sunburns, burns and there's no heat from fire or lightning. and lightning. It's pretty significant. Now, what he's doing, he's quoting Isaiah 49 here which lists the same ones. Think about this. There's no hunger. Why is there no hunger? Because we're with Jesus, the bread of life. There's no thirst because he is the living water. The stuff about sun and heat, that's the the judgments to come later in Revelation chapter 16. We're not gonna suffer through that. He's promising we're gonna be okay. And then the final blessings are in verse 17 where we experience the eternal joy with our redeemed Savior. It says the lamb is in the midst of the throne. The lamb now will become the shepherd Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice. This is the culmination of that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse, or Psalm 23. If you remember that Psalm, it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what do we not do? We will not fear. But sometimes there is some fear, isn't there? If we're honest. Sometimes we're scared about the future. But look at that last part verse 17. Because sometimes there is pain. And sometimes there is some agony and anguish in our life. But there will be a day that God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Again, he's quoting Isaiah where he said, God's going to swallow up death and Hades and he's going to wipe away every tear. So how does that? That's great for the future, but what about now? My challenge to you: If you believe that this is real, how are you living that out in day, day to day? Are you relying upon yourself in those difficult times? Are you turning to God and saying, "God, this is hard, but I trust you"? What do you want me to do with it? The runner. Ball up your fist and say, Why, God? Why, God? Are you going to say, God, I trust you. I don't like this right now, but I know you got a plan. What do you want me to do? You open that fish and say, What do I do with this? What are you showing me? What are you growing me here, God? Because this is the snapshot of the future. Be careful, because sometimes we, we, uh, we like to cut deals with God, don't we? We get into a situation like, Okay, God, I messed up. I'll be better. I'll read my Bible. I'll memorize a verse, and we think God owes us, right? Be careful with that. God is God, and we're not. I'll tell you a quick story, and we'll wrap up. There was a guy in the Old Testament, Numbers. It's a funny story. I think his name's Balak. He's a king, and he sees he sees the nation of Israel surrounding him, and he's watched his fellow kings get destroyed because God's going ahead of them with his angels. And he says, okay, I, just need, I need somebody to come in and curse these guys so they'll lose. So he, he reaches out to a world-famous um, prophet and he hires him. He says, hey, come, come down here and curse these people. This guy was like 400 miles away. And those days, that's a long, that's a long way. He sends some of his guys up there to take some money to hire him. And the guy's like, no, I don't think so. I see the Israelites, no, I'm not gonna do it. So his guys come back 400 miles. King says, go back again. So he sends more money. This time the guy goes, that's a lot of money. Let's try it out. So he shows up. And on the way, he's riding his donkey. His name was Balaam. Y'all remember this guy? Now this guy who's supposed to be this world famous prophet and close to gods, he can't even see an angel who's in his way takes this donkey to speak to him and say, don't go that way. So the angel appears and says, it's a good thing your donkey, your donkey talked to you because I was getting ready to strike you dead. And you can read the rest of the story. So my challenge to you, are you making deals with God? Don't have God not see his spirit in your life. Don't have God use a donkey to bring you back to him because He will. He'll use whatever he can to get you back to him. But sometimes that's with with a little bit of pain. God says, just come to me as you are. Don't try to earn your merit before you come to me. Just come to me as you are. So right now, I'm going to ask you, just everyone bow your heads. Spend a few moments and come to God as you are. Jesus says come to me all you are heavy laden I'll give you rest that's a great promise with great hope as we move into a time in communion use this moment to examine yourselves as he, as he encourages us in scripture and part of that examination is are you free in your confession of sin with him not that you're free from sin well never will be but have you confessed your sin have you have you left it at the altar? And say, God, forgive me. But become, before you come to his table, this is God's table, and he's inviting us to it. Here in New City, if you've not made a profession of faith in Christ, we ask that you, that you not take the elements of communion, because it's just, it's just a wafer and juice. It'll actually bring false judgment on you, or judgment, but the false hope. And what what we want for you is the true hope of relationship with Christ. So if you know him, I ask you to spend a few moments in reflection, come to him as you are, think about your future hope and what the snapshot of being with him in heaven will be like. And then live it out here every day in your relationships and how you love one another, you serve one another, and you submit to one another in the love of Christ. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.